You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. If you've ever been curious about the real or fictional worlds, those who create or what inspires, then you'll enjoy tonight's episode of Here He Tires. The only podcast show where we take life by the tail. This is Yubi Tigers. Hi, I'm your host, Jaron Zerf, and this is Yubi Tigers. The only podcast show where we take life by the tail. For today's episode, I decided to share with you a conversation I had a little while ago with uh, my longtime friend, Ken Hearn. Like me, he's a tremendous fan and advocate of sci-fi horror and fantasy writing, and he has a genuine interest in the world where a tale resides. Just a quick heads up, though. Our conversation today is a live one. We were in the attic of his old family house, so there's perhaps still a slight echo. Also, there are quite a few spoilers for my book mostly, although I think a 20-year-old episode of Doctor Who and a few other series as well. So if you prefer to read those pieces of my tale when the book is final, you want to skip from the warning we provide till around 60 or so minutes in after our final commercial break. I hope you enjoy the show. So, you that struck me again as we were talking on the phone is that it's really easy when you're telling a story to take characters to a place and just presume that place now exists for the sake of the story. Right. When in reality, anywhere in the world is there as a place in the world long before and potentially after the story has arrived, done what is to be done there and moved on. And it's whether that location has changed or not is part of the story perhaps, but it should have that sense of having existed. I'm going to say that I'm not necessarily sure that is true all the time, but certainly when something important is going on, that should be true. I mean, we both play a lot of video games. It's okay for the tunnel full of soldiers not to be a detailed place that we know a lot about, right? right? But I think there's, there's the difference between the analog, for instance, like in film nowadays, we don't typically see the whole airplane flight. Right. Or the tri- we don't see travel in full because we know you get in the car unless that moment is important to dwell in, you then move on to the arrival or whatever else is next is the interesting beat. Right. Although we've lost a little bit of that. I was thinking about Star Trek the other day because okay. I've been rewatching a bunch of the old Star Trek shows now that CBS has them out there where you can see them mm-hmm. everywhere. And I watched a little bit of Enterprise. Don't ask me which episode. Something from the first season. And the thing that immediately struck me is how much smaller that show feels than the original series of The Next Generation. In the sense of the ship itself feeling contained. Right. It okay. feels actually almost claustrophobic in places because they shoot from much closer angles. So, like, if we were on um, Next Generation, right. I would shoot a scene of you and me talking from the corner of the room. Mm-hmm. On Enterprise, they pan back and forth between close-ups. And, like, not... You know, mid-range close-ups, but like right up here so that you can see all it's got back in his head. It gives the audience the sense of you being another person at the table. Right. Which is not wrong, but it's a very different approach than they use in most of the rest of Star Trek, so it's unusual. It's one of the things that 
I noticed because I work, I work both in film and television a bit and also in writing is that the camera ends up acting as your narrator in a lot of ways. How it looks, where it looks, functions the same as a first or third person approach to telling the story. Right. Even if you're leaving out voiceover, if we're seeing mostly what one character would see, right. it's functionally a first person perspective. The, uh, I've been watching The Expanse, which is based off of a sci-fi series I'd say probably closer to the hard hard into the scale if you're going off of the usual comparisons. But it took a long time for me to, I think, care. Not just about the characters, but about the world. Because they tried, I think, in the cinematography of it, to capture that sense of establishing space as vast and empty. And to do so, they'd have these long, slow-panning, turning, gyrating shots going through the creaky passageways. They were all hexagonal of the ship's... And yes, it was eerie, and you kept on waiting for something to happen, but at the same time, I'm going, this seems too long. There was a Stargate show, not the original, one of the spinoffs, I can't remember which, that did a lot of that, too. Right. It was the one with Robert Carlyle, that's what I remember. Well, that's the important part. For me, yeah. yeah. But um, <laughs> they, there was a lot of, like, these people are alone in a space that is much bigger than them, whereas, like... Star Trek The Next Generation, and even the, no, sorry, the original series, and even the animated series, believe it or not, in a lot of cases, does this really excellent job of making you believe, like, aha, we are somewhere in the vastness of space. Next Generation upgrades to, like, paintings of things. Like, if, if you've watched any reasonable amount of it, you've seen the Cardassian homeworld on Deep Space Nine. Yeah. You've seen the Klingon homeworld from a distance, and, you know, there's... You see it. There's like buildings and there's the, the sky is a particular color and maybe there's some weather going on persistently and stuff like that. Konos, right. which is the Klingon homeworld, always looks like a place. You don't really want to hang around if These you don't have These are the stories come back to time again. Right. We've got Konos a lot in, the, orig- in uh, the Next Generation because of Worf and Picard's storyline related to the turnover in their government. Right. Whereas we're on Cardassia occasionally in Deep Space Nine because they're the major antagonists of that series and they're early gone. And I think, to my point, part of what helps give that sense of the world feeling real, that there's a home that Worf goes back to, that Cardassia is an empire, that there is a force, there's a life beyond. This is not totally pertinent to the conversation we're having right now. There is this thing that sits in Worf's corners on Next Generation that for years, I had no idea what it was. It looks like an oversized hat rack. Like, a seven-foot-tall hat rack with, like, both the size of a person's head. <laughs> it probably was a hat rack. I thought so. Okay. And then, finally, I'm watching one of the episodes with Worf's parents coming to visit him on the ship, the human ones who adopted him, right. the other night, and he's just sitting in it like a chair, staring at a mirror. And I'm like, oh my god, that's a chair. How is that a chair? <laughs> it's for a rightful posture. Well, it's 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 a revelatory moment because like, is this a Klingon chair? The Klingons like the Klingons like to sit on giant hat or is this just is a Worf's adaptation? Or is this just like Worf's thing? Does he like it? Right, he's exactly. a Klingon hipster. Because Worf is just such a weird, uptight dong, frankly, throughout <laughs> a lot of the next generation that you can't really imagine him having a fun chair. So what's up here? <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, it sounds like a device that cannot possibly be comfortable to rest in. It doesn't even look comfortable. It looks like a stool that somebody, like, embedded in the middle of a giant hat rack or something when you see him sitting on You should take a screen cap, send it to Michael Dorn, and ask him how much he enjoyed using that. I mean, he'd probably answer me. He's a, a reasonably outgoing guy about that kind of thing. Somebody may have asked him already if we go look at it. I don't know. <laughs> He'll forward you a tweet from 2005. 
Right, but you know, to your point, uh, details of a living place need to be stuff like that because that's Worf's chair. Why is that Worf's chair? I don't know, but it is. Fine, we know that. Or uh, Picard has that aquarium in his ready room with the lionfish right. that, like, nearly everybody who's seen more than one episode of Next Generation knows is there because we're in the ready room all the time. Mm-hmm. Why does Picard have an aquarium in his ready room? Who cares? Picard has an aquarium in his ready room because Picard demanded there be an aquarium. I mean, you can read something into that. The subtext is there in the location. Right. And it doesn't have to be, I think, in a way, too, it doesn't have to be what the creators of the show even tell you the reason is. You can read something into that and go, this is what I feel of the character. Right. I always thought that it was some kind of weird Klingon sculpture that Worf had, not a chair. So I was wrong, and now my whole opinion of Worf has changed a little bit. For all you know, it's a bonsai tree that you grow into a chair. No, it's definitely a chair. <laughs> I'm sure of that now. <laughs> okay. But it's a... This is partially related. I had finished reading a series not too long ago where my interpretation of how the story is being told differed from eventually what the author told me the reason was, because I asked her. And I was disappointed because it's not that I felt my interpretation was better, per se, but I felt that story was true when I read it. Mm-hmm. And it was disappointing to discover that wasn't the truth. Sure. But at the same time, that value of that story being true, that experience being mine, doesn't cease to exist. I've forgotten the details exactly, but in the Wheel of Time books, there's a point where Rand captures one of the bad guys, and he throws in with Rand. Okay. And I was so excited for this, because now we've got a guy who is uh, thousands of years old, you know, evil wizard. So what's he about? (laughs) Right? I'm like, okay, let's see how this goes, because Wheel of Time has just so much talking... Yes. And just yes. so much exposition that when a new thing pops up, it's like, okay, so how does this guy fit into the space we established? What, what, what's going on? And I think he dies in like the same book he throws in with Rand, or maybe the next one. <laughs> like it, it's been a long time. Wheel of Time fans listening to this will be like, no, you're wrong. It's blah 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 blah. But this is how I remember. You know what? Feel free to tweet me. Right, exactly. I don't know, so I won't say you're wrong. I, I, I guarantee you that I am correct that at some point one of the bad guys throws in with Rand. But the exact details of how it plays out, except that he dies not that long afterward, I don't want to try to guarantee. You know, that, that's what I remember. But I was psyched for that, and then it was kind of a letdown. This is partially related to what we'll be talking about today, but that sense of trying to convey vast experience, a thing, either sentient or just a space that has existed for millennia, or a large enough time that people don't know how to quantify it, mm-hmm. either because the means have disappeared or because the record itself doesn't exist well enough to establish beginning and or even a sense of people knowing. Right. Um, to think of another example, you actually can go too far the other way and make your space so daunting and weird and unknowable that it is a problem. Right, because then how are you supposed to A, describe it or have people connect or want to be in it? Right, it actually makes it a lot harder to figure out what the heck's going on. Um, Glenn Cook's Black Company books start... Um, or have as their major setting in the early going, what basically amounts to a giant overgrown cemetery, right? Like, on a, you know, um, metropolitan, even scale, okay? That place actually feels pretty real and alive within the context of that book. Later they go elsewhere to some kind of, like, giant tree in a desert, if I'm remembering right. And the whole giant tree in the desert thing does not seem real, because it's just too strange. And it doesn't really fit with the mood of the rest of his world, and that's important because if what is occurring in the world makes the reader go, I don't believe this exists, or I don't believe this could, 
exist right. in, in your the, world. In that particular context, uh, most of the almost the entire rest of the black company world, with maybe one or two exceptions, is this extremely low fantasy setting, right? In which the wizards are mostly dead. Sure. And, you know, the characters are mercenaries, and they are literally guys who fight for a living and are probably going so to die if they're not here. A wizard did it occurs at most once a book. Uh, no, I mean, wizards are also the major antagonists through a lot of the books, but they're the remaining wizards, and they're kind of scrambling to continue to be the remaining wizards, as it were. Okay, so there's a sense of desperation. Right, and like the, in particular, the Howler, who is like a recurring villain, um, he loses a lot, but he's a wizard, and he's persistent. But the point is, the big tree, yeah. right, that's like a high fantasy detail that somehow beamed into, into Glenn Cook's setting from space. It doesn't quite click. Well, it's like they were trying to capture Conan and Hyperborea there for a moment there, that old, the world that had been still creeping up in places, or did that not come across at all? Well, the Black Company characters, even even the couple of like named protagonist characters, do right. not come across as being nearly as formidable as Conan or even a lot of his like sidekicks and allies. Sure. Like they, they, they it genuinely is uh, an attempt at like saving Private Private Ryan, but in a fantasy so, context. Were they to see a giant tree in a, de- in a desert, it means a wizard did it, and it means we don't go there. Right. See, this is the logic you would expect them to employ. And the, you know, there are narrative reasons why they go there. He actually, there's a payoff to it. Sure. If there's something more compelling than the desire to not go where the hazard is. Right. But there, but the fact that that he's just sort of dropped this thing that you would expect out of like the Forgotten Realms, you know? Yes into a setting where otherwise we are literally trench fighting with zombies some of the time and stuff like that, it doesn't quite click. One of the neat things about that is that the supernatural in his books is nearly always the antagonist also. So to have the good guys deliberately hanging out in a supernatural location, it just feels off. It feels like there is at least a beat of not more missing as to... How did this and why did this, if nothing else, survive here? And is and it almost to me brings a chicken and egg question: Did the tree or the desert come first? There is an answer for that in the book. I want to be, I want to give Lynn Cook full credit here okay. for like paying because it off. I think you have to tell. He's that. going somewhere with it, but right. it feels really weird when it's introduced. It doesn't ever really completely lock in because whatever that answer is, it has to build off. Not just logically, but cohesively from what he's established right. before. What, what else we know is going on? And I remember, and I don't want to ruin you know the, the series for people who should be reading it because it's honestly dumb. Um, Cook's a good. Writer. If you like ground level fantasy, if you like dark fantasy, you should read the Black Company books because they are part of the DNA of basically everything written after them that's in that same space. They're very good. I started writing them what ten years ago? No, no, much much longer ago. Actually. Really? Yeah. That's right, uh, when we were teenagers. Uh, I was reading them when we were teenagers. So, they'd, been, they'd been around for a while then. But. Not to age ourselves, but this is two decades past. Right. It's, it's been a bit. Uh, <laughs> I believe he wrote them in the 70s and early 80s, but I could be wrong. The internet can fact check me on that, or you guys can. But the point is, they're fairly old. They're certainly from before the late 90s, 2000s, like here, let's have young adult science fiction everywhere. I will make sure to put it in the notes. Yeah. Uh, they're good, also. Which is something you don't always expect out of fantasy writing. We've had some negative experiences with old fantasy writing. <laughs> that's for that's for a whole episode by itself, probably. Okay, but we, we will let's get go to your actual. We, topic. we will get around to <laughs> the conciliator at some point. No, no, leave that alone. We're not going to talk about uh, the conciliator. Okay, just for that, I'm naming the next character in our one shot Severian. <laughs> and he is going to sour everything. He's going to have to just never be excited about anything. Or <laughs> you're not doing it right. That will be the. 
That's the worst character to bring to an improv game. It is. That's that's like near the top of that list. Yeah. Because you're still yes anding. It's just that yes and I don't care. Right. Yes and I'm a horrible wet blanket killjoy. <laughs> Which is fun once and then stops being fun for everybody else immediately. I think it's only fun if everyone else knows you're bringing it. And maybe not even then. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's hard to sustain and still keep the joy and momentum going. Right. So what we're here about today is... So, one of the things I've discovered as I've written the book over the years is that, for me, the story comes first, character's voice, what they're doing, and then slowly the setting, the where. I knew this from writing short stories, that I would typically take three rounds, eventually the world would come into being. But occasionally, when the story moves into a new part of the world, I have to go the other way around. For me to know what the characters would actually be doing, why they'd be in a place, or what would be their path through it. I have to know that location. I have to see it. I have to know what it smells like, what it tastes like, where people go to get water, or whatever else is a necessary resource. Just the fundamentals of living in this space and why people chose this location among everywhere else to be. And this particular location, I'll give some details to in a moment, but it existed enough to make the story get there and for scenes to occur. But I'm now in this new revision hitting the point where I have to put chapters and scenes there. And a decent portion of the book is going to occur in this space in the present timeline. And I have the story beats, I have the characters, but I'm butting up against this point of this place only exists because the story says characters go here. And the nature of the place is it has been here for a much longer time. It has its own history, its own weird quirks. It's removed by and large from a, large, from a good portion of the world. All of those, to me, as an anthropologist and as someone who studied cultures, says these people are going to be weird in particular, have their own customs. And if they're used to strangers coming, it's only under certain context. Sure. If it's a pilgrimage or something else like that to this location. So what I thought is, let's upend that process. Go find out what the location is. We don't need to talk about how the story arrives there today. We just need to have a discussion about the place where the story could come. And... For me, I think that's enough to then think about what will happen when the characters in their journey hit there and everything that occurs after. Hang on a minute. Okay, go I, ahead. Just before we get going, I want to say something. I've known you for a very long time. And one of the things that has been fundamentally different about how you and I approach running role-playing games has been that you usually have a story you want to tell when right. it's you behind the screen. And I am much more prone to creating a space... And just letting you guys loose on it. Big classic <laughs> sandbox. Right. We've done things which were, for example, a mega dungeon in a town that was near the edge of a glacier, which and the dungeon was up against and under the glacier. And my design scheme for that was basically to take a video game E approach. <laughs> there were levels. Right. This is the fire level. My personal favorite one was definitely the fire level. Anecdote wise, because that was the one where you guys got my nope. initial couple sentences of description and said that. Okay. And told me we're going somewhere else. That's not fair. He describes this location as a giant cavern with teetering pillars. Emerging out of a lava pool, right? Swimming through that are serpentine creatures made of flame. I think I described only one. Okay, one. <laughs> but for you, one means more underneath. I mean, that's fair. It was a snake pit full of burning serpents. Okay. He got through the first two lines of describing this. We turned around and found any other way. I want to be clear. I had like five people, <laughs> all right, in the party at this point looking at me. 
And they all had this look of, like, stunned disbelief that I thought that would be any fun at all. <laughs> and were more or less unanimous in the, no, we're leaving. I think we, we all flash back momentarily to old platforming games uh-huh. and envisioned the moment of one of us accidentally bumping the other into the lava pool. Right. I mean, there were definitely others. There was, you know, the place with the hags or the place where the undead were hanging out and stuff like that. And the hags and the bird mask was cute. Was right. Cute. But that was a memorable one. Or another favorite was the room with the pillar with the bronze snake wrapped around it, which turned out to be much more of an experience okay. than I expected it to be for you guys. You, you don't have to be older than five years old to walk in a room with a giant metal snake and electrical scars on the stone wall to realize you should not touch the snake. Apparently, not everybody in our team was mentally more than five years old. No. That's not fair, though. I think Terry touched it just to see what would happen. Terry's rationalization was, I could take it. Well, he, well, also, his theory just generally was like, whenever I would present you guys with a bad thing, see what happens. Right, which is why he bad-touched the first wizard we ran into. He was the one behind opening the uh, leaded-shut, chained-up coffin that you guys released the ancient ghost from. Right. Mind you, about half a year before, we had discovered this and walked by, and like the lava pit said, nope. Right. No, they, they actually came back to that probably almost uh, an actual for-real year after I had first introduced them. <laughs> Uh, not the whole year, but, you know, pretty close. Which Terry's mind, that nope was mm, later. Right. And... I'm pretty sure that's why Jared wants me here now. So let's talk about this place you need to figure out. Right. So, story aside, here are the things about the world that we can pull from. Because the truths about the world, at least as they're known, are what would help us inform and define the place. Like we've talked about before, there are those who are full of fire, and it's literal and figurative. There are those who dream too much. And in this case, there was once an empire that tried to escape the world. They built an ark. It didn't quite go where it was supposed to. It eventually... Crashed, it landed, it blew up. There are different stories as to what happened. But no one has ever found the entirety of it. Now, is this a metaphorical escape the world, or is this a literal literal get on a rocket and leave? This is a literal, everyone important that we can put on this, we GTFO, bye-bye. Okay, so knowing that your world exists in at least a semi-post-apocalyptic context, I'm going to assume that this is the remnants of some kind of very failed space program. Yeah. Dave had thrown out when we were talking about origin stories, because in doing the map of the world, there seemed to be two kind of conflicting versions of how the world is. It could either be seen fully as Earth post how many, ever many years we haven't assigned a date, or it could as easily be broken portions of an arc ship in space. Okay. Because the sea is only defined as a vast amount of difficult, difficult, dark distance to cross, and boats go across it, however boats are described. Okay. So, important to this location, which I've called the Hayakal or the Lonely Tree, it is at the far, far end of what is known. It's probably, if not the nearest, or it's said, the furthest. The furthest thing away from known habitable land of what's left, and the beginnings of what is called the, the uh, Long Night Sea. It's an ocean that is as dark above as it is below. It is mostly still, it glitters, it's hard to tell where the surface is and where the sky is. Mm-hmm. You just don't go there anymore because there's no point. There's nowhere to go from there. Yeah. If people have gone, they've never come back. It's believed probably at some point people came over. There seem to be remnants of things they used to cross it or tried to cross it with from this way. It's hard to tell. They're just remnants. And to me, it feels like, and you can we can play with this, this... Lonely tree, again, starts off both as a literal tree, but also has metaphorical meaning to people who live there. And 
I kind of in my gut feel like at least part of the Ark ship is there too, for whatever reason. It shouldn't, given where the ship was launched from, be here. But at least part of it feels like it is. And I don't know why that is, but I know my gut long enough. To, I've, I've known my gut as a writer long enough to know that I will subconsciously see a thing and eventually figure out why that is insistent okay. on itself. I feel like those who dream too much are partly involved in this because somehow, if you're going to break the known rules of the world or change them, people who have the ability consciously or not to do that would be involved. So historically... People who are into the idea of meditating want to be left alone. This sounds like a great place to be left alone, and that seems like the kind of thing that those who dream too much might be into. It's almost, it's kind of like a village of anchorites, in the sense that, well, in the literal sense that they could find a branch to themselves. Right. Or a sliver of a branch to make their own individual home. So perhaps on the furthest reaches of it, whether we're talking the actual physical tree or things that are part of the Ark that have been intermeshed with it, however so. So this Ark definitely ended up somewhere else. Somehow a part of it is here. Well, is there a reason it couldn't have launched from here? Honestly, no. I'm Because the tree theme sounds to me... Like someone tried to root it? Well, no, actually, like something that could be realized as this is where they built it, and so now there's a bunch of leftover, you know, cranes and support infrastructure like you see NASA use at Cape Canaveral. Sure. And things laying around, and nobody really knows what that's for anymore. Right, but it's like a tree. So. Right, but it, it, it emerges in a sort of tree-like way, especially as it starts to fall over and come to pieces. And... Uh, Presumably, it would have to be very large if one was going to build an ark to get off the planet entirely or to somewhere else altogether, right? You're going to need a great deal of space. Great deal of space, a a lot of energy and resources transported. So I think really, to a certain extent, what this may be is an abandoned dockyard, or not abandoned so much as disused, and they may not remember what it's really for anymore. Which meant somewhere either at the ocean base or somewhere deep embedded, were the infrastructures to carry resources and power and whatnot, the roots, as it were. Right, and those might be under the ocean now, people might just not know where they are, although that seems a little unlikely. It sounds like at least part of it's cropped up and has become surrounding structures and islands and pieces around it. Right, I mean, you need a lot of um, superstructure and infrastructure just to build things of that scale now. So it's possible, as people discover it, they may have somehow wrenched pieces of it up. Right. I mean, if you watch um, season two of The Wire, which is set primarily in the port of Baltimore, sure. like there's a lot going on just in the port. I almost, this is one vision I had a little while ago. I am forgetting, but you see, you know, like those forms of coral growth where it almost fans out? Sure. I can almost envision pieces of the, whatever it's metal or substance, just ripped out and torn by wind and waves, but still partially, it's a, it, develop, it develops almost a coral like form just from the erosion, but it is the actual uh, substrata. Yeah, if it's the base that the coral is growing on or something like that, that makes a certain amount of sense, for sure. So let's let's sit for a moment on the, the most removed hermits, the ones sitting on the branches, the folks who don't ever want to be bothered. How are they getting their water, their food, and other resources so that they never have to deal with anyone else? Well, here's the simplest possible answer. If we're at a location that's on the sea, they're a fish here. Sure. And if you want to have it have a lot of coral and things around, coral reefs are a place which are very biodiverse and have lots of fish. So problem solved as far as where do they get food in a general sense. Even if they're high up, these folks have means of getting back down to the water or pulling up from it. 
Or they just have to do that. That's sure. their job. Maybe the lower-ranking acolytes have to go fishing, and then they have to bring it up the, you know, torn-down remnants of a crane okay. to the revered so, master sitting on this top. This is interesting. Maybe we had a culture that started off as anchorites, but as more people came and wanted to learn from them, they eventually became this myth and belief that the folks living most removed were the highest and the most deserving of veneration, so that you had to earn their approval or the trust enough. Meanwhile, of course, these folks are saying, oh, fuck it, just give me food and whatnot, and I'll... You know what? You want to bring me fish? That sounds great. You need some cryptic wisdom? Sure, I've got cryptic wisdom. And maybe they actually have some cryptic sure. wisdom. Let's not discount that. After they've been chewing on centuries' growth of moss from the trees and whatnot. But ancient monks sitting out in the middle of nowhere do still have to eat. Yes. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special commercial for We Podcast and We Know Things. Wow, a commercial? Yes, Sam, a commercial. You do this to me every time. Anyway, we are We Podcast and We Know Things, the single source for all of your nerdy news in gaming, TV, film, music, and all things pop culture. Heck, even wrestling. We're basically spreading the good word of nerd one episode at a time. Check us out here on the ESO Podcast Network and wherever fine podcasts are, including the iOS podcast app, CastBox, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up with all the goings-on in the nerdy world. Now back to your ESO Network podcast. Who's better than us? I suppose you could make a kind of hydroponic if you're catching rain, or if they are digging grooves into the material and creating their own kind of if that material is fur- is arable at right. some point, you could eventually dig or terif- not terrace right. portions of it to make your gardens. There's probably some way of making this place fairly habitable for people, which actually then gets me back to your, is this a syncretic society of some kind? I'm pretty sure everybody there doesn't want to be monks. Maybe they are sailors who got lost and wound up here. Maybe they're pirates. Maybe they're people who literally wanted to run to the ends of the earth because those kinds of people exist. I would imagine you probably have, given at least the two major wars that have occurred, one in the past and one in the more recent past, there were, among others, there were refugees. There were folks who just said, I'm done. Right. And these people may be running a very literal port, which would probably be where your characters would arrive in that case. Right, so the port's an interesting case because it's not, it is not a friendly environment to navigate, I would imagine. I, I don't imagine these guys really want visitors, but at the same time, it would be sort of difficult to keep surviving there without any. Right, so somehow they would have needed to make out of this stuff cropping from the ocean pathways. They will well, have I mean, traditionally and probably even to a certain extent that we're not allowed to know about now, right? Uh, Important military ports, certainly in Europe and I believe also in um, Asia, were filled with wreckage and sandbars and things that they didn't tell you about. And sometimes you had to pay a guy to land your ship and make sure it didn't wreck on any of that when you wanted to come into port. So chances are, on the outlying smaller pieces of root or the metal or other substances, there is a a, a first right ring of market right. where you can pay to have someone navigate you through or take your goods for you while you sit docked over there. 
So you've got the folks who don't actually want to get involved with either the culture or the risk of entering. They only stay at that first ring of the market or that that layer. Right, which probably means it's a thing that you want a reference about, like, the settlement of the Caribbean to look into, for sure. example. Um, because that that is basically what a number of what are now things like the capital of Jamaica were, <laughs> if I'm recalling right. So you'd probably have floating markets, things that could be lifted up easily during storms. You probably have... Typically, that's not all that practical, historically speaking. No, so because if anything, these guys are going to be, I assume, very interested in not experiencing st- the kind of storms that right. happen so on the open ocean. What, what they would need then are portions break, where they They'll could, need breakwaters, they'll need yep. jetties, they'll need things like that. And getting around all of those is what you end up having to pay somebody. Right. And they'll probably have their little way stations tucked into nooks and crannies that are sheltered. Sure. They'll have somebody out there in all likelihood. It might even be... The middle level monks who are you know stuck having to do that got it all from effectively lighthouse duty, right? Uh, but that's yeah, it's probably something like that. So you have your monks living out on the very edge of whatever this is. You have your junior monks supplying them, and you have your middle tier monks possibly or maybe just whoever really doesn't want to be bothered with anything other than you know waving a light in the middle of the night, living out in the port itself, or out on the edges of the port itself, directing people to where the people are, as it were. Now, the other question then that, that uh, immediately occurs to me is, what do these guys have that's worth having? Right. So this, to me, gets back to the question of, if the Ark itself is either partially here or remnants of it are here, likely the technology is not understood right. by any means. That or seems not pretty, like a pretty safe bet, given what else we know but about. But by the same yeah. token... People can only have been on it for so long, so long without having had some success in tapping into its infrastructure, its fuel supply, its fuel source, whatever made that thing work. Potentially, yeah. So, because then there's the, there's the other issue of this, which is if this thing is a massive pile of ganglia, effectively, if it's a, if it's a, I imagine there's probably some co- there's probably some natural structure to it, but if it's not built with rhyme or reason in mind, if it was not a planned thing, there has to be transportation built around it. Means of getting through this simply because people will not want to have to circumnavigate every little twist and turn of the branches. Seems like a good candidate for gondolas or boats to get around on. Right. So down by the water, yes. But when we get further up. Are you going up at that point? I guess that's one of the questions. One, why do people go up? Mm-hmm. I imagine when you get up to the boughs and the higher branches, there's probably, well, it's you're, getting, you're in a different ecosystem at that point. You're in a non-ecosystem at that point, not right. likelihood, depending on the scale. There was one version of it where at that point you're in planets. So this is becoming something vaguely, very vaguely, like in the remote mountains of Tibet, in a old pulpy cereal sort of way. In a sense, and I think to you, this is why I think those who dream too much were involved, because this is something that only exists if people who've read stories about that stuff think it could be. Okay. It's like Adam calling the motorcycle an iron horse. Mm-hmm. His father has collected pulp stories and other stuff that sits in the, in the uh, study. He's read about these fantastic things that were, doesn't know what the words are actually supposed to refer to. Just that there were fantastic things. So, Oh, that must be what it means. Yeah. 
close enough. I've seen a horse. Mm-hmm. It's made of metal, kind of moves like a horse, good enough. It's really literally not what an iron horse is, no, but that's okay. <laughs> but that, I think by the same token, I imagine at least one version of Howard and Haggard have existed in this world and someone has picked it up, or it's been passed along story-wise. And of the few that could dream well enough, at least one got the idea of making this tree bigger than it was, or maybe, like, I, I don't know, maybe it was tiny or reasonable or just plant growth on ruins at some point that they cultivated. Mm-hmm. But at this point, it's unmanageable without the people who live there. Well, if we're assuming that it is the remnant of an industrial center, right? True. Sure. Having been to the American South, for example, one possibility would be that now it's overgrown with vines and creepers and things like that. And that's the environment you're having to deal with the further you grow up, go up, until finally you're too high for them to go. There, there's one other thing we could pull from, which we talked about, I think, in the first podcast with Pablo and Dave. The old empires and the societies past them they learned it some way to infuse or alter water so that it could carry energy or be more useful than that. So the aqueducts were not just for potable water, but for the fuel source itself. It sounds tremendously unsafe, but okay. <laughs> there are reasons the empire doesn't exist anymore. Fair enough. <laughs> the other thing is that they became adept at altering things like chitin and other substances that could be used to make materials, surfaces. So if part of the infrastructure of this arc was either constructed out of chitin-like substances or had the means to still convey or create that infused water. I haven't, I don't have a word for it at the moment I could use, called ether or whatever. Mm. But to make a power source or to convert what is not usable into a power source. Right. Maybe that still works. And maybe enough of it does to fuel certain things. Okay, well, what things would those be? Well, I think... Knowing humans, it would be multiple things, and they would fight over what should be used for most and first. Right. So, obviously food, transportation, moving water, potable water. Because the higher up you go, the harder it is, unless you've created your own your own systems. I feel like these guys don't have to fight about food. You feel like it's big enough to not worry. There but, probably just aren't enough of them to actually tax the ecosystem around. Right, so then we're looking at transportation. Okay. Yeah, that they that they want to fight about, especially if they're for whatever reason trying to carry right. out some so kind of industry. Transportation then becomes the conflict because it's not just how much you use the power, but where it goes and where it doesn't. Right. Because those people who live on the outer reaches, again, don't per se want the refugees or the religious tourists or even just the basic pilgrims. I mean, if we assume that these monks and um, other religious guys were here first, as it were, I would imagine that the basic conflict is between what they think ought to be done with power, which is probably something esoteric and weird. Yes. And what the refugees and the other people living in the port think ought to be done with they power, may even which is believe, probably not. They may even believe that that power is necessary to keep, for instance, those who dream docile or to keep things balanced. We My theory is that the monks probably want to use the power to grow more space to be monks on. I think the most reductionist version, regardless of what their philosophies are, that's probably true. Because their space is what matters to them. Right. And they may have these, you know, elaborate gardens the way Buddhist monks tend to, or they may be 
illuminating manuscripts and designing weird things the way the Christian monks tended to. I, I could, but they probably need power to do it. I can envision there are factions that debate whether they should put mandalas on the tree or turn them into Zen gardens and pieces. Or it, They may debate or they may just do it, confident that there's nobody else out on this particular branch to stop, to stop them. Doing it. Right. And then the guys on the other branch over are like, what in the world do you do that for? But they don't have the time or, you know interest to go fight them about it. They just do their own weird thing. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to my friend Nick Laurie, who's a neuroscientist, and mm-hmm. one of the bodies of research he's looking into is the effects of the immortality or long life on the human psyche. Okay. And so he, he's working on a sci-fi story where humans eventually split with the ability to become immortal or not, and they don't give the power to everyone. Mm-hmm. And in his argument, those people who live forever go crazy because they lose a reason to live. There's a, I think it's a Paul, P-O-U-L, Anderson story oh, yeah. along those lines. It's actually pretty good, where they don't necessarily go crazy, but they sure do become significantly less able to relate to everybody else. Back before the 5e forums collapsed, this was during the beta edition for, and I'm getting a little geeky here, but you should know this by now. When they were beta testing the new version of D&D, they had the forums alive for us to talk about what we wanted. And we had this huge conversation about what undead, the non-living, should be, what the story behind them should be like. And I threw out, as an example, I really wanted a Death Knight who was Don Quixote-like, whose purpose had kept him beyond life. He still looked for a nemesis, and he would make them up if he needed to. A guy who doesn't get up every day looking for a fight, he's been looking for a fight this whole time. Where's his fight at? By the same token, people kept on going into liches at these monstrosities and said, I would love to tell a story of a lich. This is a wizard who gave up his life to, or gave up his humanity to live forever. Sometimes a cleric. Right. So it's some guy who cast spells. But we decided clerics would be mummies. In this case, what they wanted to do was recreate the time they were in. Okay, fair enough. So, because we're trying to come up with a narrative different, way to differentiate. So, the lich in this case, I said, I would love to explore the idea of a wizard who wanted to live forever so that he could read everything. <laughs> but eventually, after I don't know how long, right. gave up. Because either what, you know, following Godwin's law, it was all crap by and large, or not just Godwin's, frustrated that yeah. people kept writing things. Yeah, or just <laughs> that he would never finish. Right. He eventually tasked the party with finding his phylactery among his many belongings so they could end his life. I figure out where this thing even is because I'm sick of this nonsense. <laughs> but just that sense that the monstrosity of the lich isn't that they have lost their humanity, per se. It's that they've lost their sense of what it means to be finite. And that their obsession will be so peculiar and alien because they will have had to, they'll have to find something to latch onto to give them the impetus to continue. I mean, minor spoiler for two before is Ace Farak is just sitting around as a skull with a bunch of gems set in it, doing whatever disembodied weird stuff he does at the very end of the two before. <laughs> Please tell me he's learning to play chopsticks. They don't ever. I don't think we ever actually get told what he means to be doing. Just that he has this ridiculous, elaborate, beyond elaborate, contrived, like bewildering death trap set up. Apparently, so nobody will bother him while he's doing it. And this brings up an interesting point, because in a way, what we're getting to is that people will find a thing to create to fill the space they're in. Whether it's a physical space or a metaphysical space, they will fill the emptiness around them Mm -hmm. with something. And that's useful, but it's also dangerous if those who dream too much are present or also doing it. Um, Probably, yes. So on the one end, yeah, it's probably safe because there's maybe enough physical space that even if they do something crazy... No one else is around. It's spread out enough that nobody else is going to have to worry about it. Right. Right. So it's possible that if not them, 
if not the monks first or them first, one or the other gravitated to this as a place of refuge because they could be there and not be bothered. I would guess both. Yeah. Just for somewhat different reasons. And so I don't know whether it was presumed at some point that the monks either do or should take care of that population so that they don't affect anyone else. Mm. I can kind of imagine that it was tasked to them as the uh, de facto caretakers of this. I mean, in most stories, your character showing up would be amidst the boiling point of a conflict between the people who live on the docks and the monks, because of course it would be, because interesting things only happen when the protagonists are around. In this case, part of what they're going to find there is the old commanding officer from this, the war they were in, mm-hmm. who after... Things did not go well. She decided to live where... And go hide out there. Yes, and have her kid and live in peace. Okay. And the conflict is partly that problems come back and find her in her home. Which is exactly what these the entire population of this place, really, monks included, does not want to have. The whole point of coming here is you want to not be bothered. Right. This is the end of the world as far as... It's either the beginning or the end of the world in the sense that you can't get past here. And it either started here or you wouldn't be able to survive any further. Right. So, leave it alone. It's unspoiled. The war never got here. Well, unspoiled is the wrong word, but it's all of that stuff from the continent or whatever derogatory term they would use. For Everything people. that happens in your world that is worth avoiding happens somewhere else. In a way, it's almost the moon. Sure. The people and everyone else down there is on the earth. The and that sense of alienness that the things that could or should bother you. Because they don't have to worry about food, they don't have to worry about water. Did you know the ESO Network has a brand new Patreon? That's right, we're asking for your help and you could do it for as little as a dollar a month. Don't fret, all your favorite shows will still be available for free as always. But you can get exclusive podcasts and more not heard anywhere else but on our Patreon. To sign for the ESO Network, Patreon's easy. All you have to do is go to ESOPodcast.com and click on the link. With your support of the ESO Network, it's you who will reap the rewards. I watched, incidentally and possibly of interest, uh, Brockmire, which okay. is a Hank Azaria uh, miniseries okay. with uh, him as a disgraced baseball announcer. And Hank Azaria turns out to actually have a really great ballpark announcer voice. Ha! <laughs> Go figure. But his character is such an absolute mess of a human being that he does things like break it out in bed with Amanda Peet. <laughs> <laughs> That's so wrong. Yeah. It is. It is quite wrong, and, um, and she's got quite, she's got the right stone face for it too. Yeah, no, she she uh, she plays off of Hank's area very well throughout the, the series to, to her credit. But the point is, I've got some ideas based on having watched <laughs> that and some other things. Hank Azaria's post-coital baseball announcer. No, no, mid-coital baseball oh, God. announcer. Yeah, it's, it's real bad. Oh, It's, it's, it's actually okay. a fun watch, the show. I have to get this off my chest then because you've created the room for it. Mm-hmm. I'm reading a new series. Well, it's not new, but it's one I'm reading now, Bob. And it takes the premise of sci-fi future based off of re- trying to relive the Enlightenment. Okay. Using the best of it from Desaad and Voltaire. Uh, that and, seems like a horrible mistake, but okay. Well... Presumably, because the powers that be that run these hive societies, which all have their own subcultures. So you've got the Olympians, which merge with the others to create the human. Right, so in some respect, this yeah. is clearly inspired by the Diamond Age. But oh, yeah. 
All right. So the reason I bring it up is that after having illustrated why Desaad has been idolized for his use of absurd and offensive to frame religious and rhetorical arguments, right. the author, a chapter and a half later, proceeds to have a gratuitous sex scene between a psychologist and this rampaging black law, who's basically someone who willingly says, I am not protected by any law, but you have to get... You have to be come able at to, me, bro. Yeah, basically, <laughs> living come at me, bro. You okay. have to be able to hurt me to win, uh-huh. and most people can't. Right. So she basically goes and does whatever the hell she feels like because the law allows her to, since sure. no one can stop her. So you have gratuitous, loud sex scene as the narrator is hiding in the closet, since this is his psychologist, mm-hmm. who eventually boards up partway through that she's having him listen in on their conversation. But it turns into paper, cardboard descriptions of the actions intermingled with the... Black Law talking about how she wants to find this living God and use it to prove that the man she worships, her boss, will destroy him because, or be destroyed by it because anything that is created in the world we're in is so monstrous that he could not allow it to live. And therefore his own psyche will shatter and that he will then crumble and have to be protected by her because this is her own, you know, erotic psychological Bizarre fantasy. fantasy, right. But basically as a narrative trope, the author is reenacting the thought and then calls it on the nose. Mm. And I'm sitting there going, no, I get it. I really get it, but... You're being a little bit self-indulgent here. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think when you hit the word slurp, we pass beyond self-indulgent. It depends on the context, but I really don't need to know any more about it. I can tell you that much. One for a whole chapter. Yeah, I I figured it was going to be long. (laughs) You wouldn't be complaining if it hadn't been. To be fair, there is in classic form a preface that excuses everything that will come. The fact that the narrator also happened to have been a murderous cannibal at 17, and that's Partially only. I still, it's a weird book because I'm Sounds that way. three quarters of the way through it, mm-hmm. and I still don't know why or what his motive is. Ah, yeah, that's a problem. And it's strange because the series I read before that, the motive from page two was clear. My husband murdered my three year old son, I'm going to kill him. Right, that's pretty good. That, that was never. But by the same token, the world, which I think partly has spurred me into this, I sit there going, the emotions are so real, Leo. Everything that's happened to you, I believe. But the world that's caused this, I don't. Mm. And it was a weird sensation to, to, to believe in the experience of the world, but not the world itself. Yeah, that, that is strange. So I'm not critiquing, I don't call it as a flaw of the book per se, but a sense of... It's a feature, sort yeah. of. <laughs> as an experience for me, it brought a new way of understanding stories to light. Okay. So I'm thankful to her for that. But it was a moment of going, why, why am I feeling this? What in the writing has caused this? Mm-hmm. Because by the same token... I per se do not want to create a world that the reader goes, sure it could, but didn't. All right. So to back up somewhat. Right. This is an environment where people go to be left alone, and your characters are coming in to take somebody out of it. To a degree. And I think to kind of button, to put a button on this tangent, Mm -hmm. which started with the undead, the people here are so engrossed in themselves Almost certainly. That they've gone weird. Right. And almost alien in their pursuits. Which is usually what happens if you exist in isolation, unless you are faced with such an urgent challenge to your own survival that you have to worry about that instead. Right. And narratively, this is a spoiler, the character arriving there is by and large a threat to other people's survival. Sure. He tries not to be, but it's in his nature. Which changes the entire context of the place. Because, as you'll know from reading the book, he's one of those who remaining full of fire. 
He's fairly good at this point about not doing it unconsciously or subconsciously. But there are other things he has to do to keep himself alive and those he can't help as much. Right. So, again... But that's the story arriving at the place. Right. Your yeah. character has come to, at least figuratively and maybe literally, take somebody out of this world of self-contained dreaming slash... Do you mind if I spoil a few Avoiding minutes? problems. Not even a little. Okay. So... And if you don't want to hear it, listener, you can fast forward now, and I'll tell you when to... Fast forward here. Timestamp incoming. In five, four, three, two, one. Right. So, Nico. <laughs> it, Nico, the guy who finds who jo- Joseph Adams' father brings him in the prologue to say, okay, he's fu- he is full of fire, we couldn't stop him. Right. Can he live, or do you have to kill him? Nico is increasingly an antagonist in the past timeline. Okay. It becomes apparent that he has a solid agenda mm-hmm. that ends up causing the war to go a certain direction disastrously. Adam realizes why this happens at the very end. Connor thinks Nico's dead. Mm-hmm. So when Connor convinces Adam in the present timeline to put things to bed, resolve, and finish what they had started, get what was promised done, and they have to go to this place, Connor is not so pleased when he discovers that Nico is still alive. And present there. Right. Now, the thing Adam discovers is that Nico was never alive. Nico was dead. His sister is still alive, created a brother to come and get rid of her, to kill her, because she can't end herself anymore. She's too entrenched in this thing. Okay. So, as one who dreams too much, she eventually managed to convince herself that her brother was still alive, and she didn't tell him to save her. But her brother, being who he was, Mm. his first driving impulse, the one that I think crystallized in him, was, I have to put an end to her. This isn't fair. I can't let her live on like this. Uh So ever since then, he has been going on trying to find a means to do this. Okay. Mucking around in the war, any means possible. So yeah, he can't really die because he never was... He's not, in a strict sense, alive. Right. Adam discovers this because his mother was one who dreams too much, and when he realized what she was capable of... It made other things seem... It put other things into context. Right. As in, like, where he grew up, similar. Right. In some ways. It was Not a in a technical sense, real. Yeah. In some ways, an actual wound. Mm-hmm. So, horrified, but, you know, in a way, okay, part of why he decided, I'm done, I'm leaving this, we're over. I'm right. going as far away from this as possible. We're done. Okay. So, there's a part of the story that gets into that point. But the... Connor, when he discovers Nico is here, his agenda is kill him. When he realizes the only way to kill Nico is to kill his sister, though, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Because if she dies, this nice little saved bastard that she is now, because of the people worshipping her, because of the people who... It's become like a feedback loop. Okay, so she is one of the most important people in this location. Then. Yeah, people believe she's essential and fundamental to it, and being convinced of that, she's become it. Okay, why do they think that? Is it just a... Underlying thing, or that's something I've been chewing over because then it gets into questions of how long. All right. Well, here's the easy one. She's the head monk. That makes sense. <laughs> effectively, the abbess. Right. Yeah. Or if she's not the head monk, then she's the she's their object of veneration. Or or she is the head monk insofar as all of the refugees are concerned, and the actual head monk is out in the middle of nowhere somewhere. Potentially, she's also the, one of the inter- remaining intermediaries between the thing they live on and what they use it for. Sure. 
She may be the only one who has any real idea what you can do in terms of, for example, making sure that the monks all keep getting power. Right. And the transportation works and people can go where they need to be. Right. She may have ended up being the mayor rather than the head monk. Right. But she may have become, in a literal sense over time, entrenched and rooted in this. Right. If you've got a problem, you take it to her because she'll get it solved. Okay. Actually, let me throw this to you. It was an interesting uh, radio labs I heard not too long ago. Okay. So... Woman, she's with her family. Her dog gets caught in an outhouse, and they're trying to dig it out. And they dig and they dig and they dig and discover the dog's all the way down the bottom of the pit. And as they rip out, they discover this huge, interconnected web of roots—not just one type of tree, but all the trees nearby. Uh-huh. And as they're continuing to research, what they discover is that the trees are sharing nutrients across species. As they're dying, they will send not a, they'll send the remnants of their nutrients not just to their own species, but to any of the nearby trees. That Whatever other trees are in. By the same token, the mites and the fungi below that are eating each other to provide and break down the nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Like every, There is no beginning and no end to this infrastructure here. Sure. And in a sense, I think she may have been fully separate. She may have been her own identity at some point. But at some point, in her own mind, she broke down at that cellular level. I'm the mayor now. Yeah, I, I, I'm here. Right? This is me. I'm in charge. So that sense of where she is and who she is. And, because in the mind, if she doesn't consider herself as being just in one place, or rather the place is her, mm-hmm. then her awareness of what's going on would extend beyond what other people could do. Well. Or, I'm not sure. I'm speculating. It depends, right? Because you don't necessarily need to assume that however important she thinks she is... That she actually is. Omniscience is a consequence of that. Right. She can presume that she is, and that presumption may lead to consequences. It may be challenged. It may be that she only knows what the other people around tell her. So if your character comes in hot, she'll find out about him really quick. This seems, for example. Let's take it from this deck. Mm -hmm. When she died, or when she became where she is now, she was still quite young. Mm -hmm. So as presuming she's still impressionable, or that state has persisted despite however long she's lived. Right. If you can impress the importance or your own will upon her, the need to do something, and she can consciously or not make or affect that. Okay. I want to say that you're in kind of thorny territory if you go down that road. I know. Not Um, least because of the character's gender. I'm aware of that, which is why I'm... Like, this is always the difficulty with fiction, because on the one hand, you have to not cut yourself off from the thought. You have to follow it through and go, where is this leading? But at the same time, you have to go, that being where it goes. What's that going to look like when it gets out into the world? Right, because, and I've argued this before, the story isn't just the words on the page, it is someone else's experience of it. It is. Um, I mean, the the easiest go-to example for that is the use of the word in Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Right. Which is completely, 100%, chronologically, contextually, Sensible. Right, but it's but been used as super a problematic if it's going to be a book that we teach to middle school kids today. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much that has to be built around that understanding, right. the use of that text. And if you don't have a context for why Mark Twain is using it there, it can be infuriating or humiliating. Right, so I think my struggle with this and why I haven't come up with a, a full understanding, well, not, not a full understanding, but why I haven't found the thing that defines this dynamic yet, Mm -hmm. 
is that I think at heart she needs a will that she can express of her own. Right. But I'm not sure how she does it and to what extent. Well, that's a very important question to solve, but it's not really a question about the place, is it? No. <laughs> but it's good to bring that up because allowing that to come to the fore allows I mean, it to percolate. I assume, right, if we... Allowing for the existence of a imaginary brother who is supposed to kill her. Right. That what she wants ambivalently is to be left alone to run this place. Only does she want it. Probably not. She's created her own assassin. Well, and that's, that could be at the point of consciously she believes she needs to be here to help these people. But does she believe that, or do they keep telling her so? And maybe that's the conflict, is that she tries to convince herself of that, while at heart, she just wants to end. I think that's probably closer to something that makes sense. She really doesn't want this job, and they keep insisting that it's hers, and more and more people keep showing up wanting to be left alone. Right. And and the monks are like, no, you're the only one who can deal with these people, maybe. Well, there are, because I've not established a timeline of when she arrives here. Right. But it is possible that certain characters who've been around a while mm-hmm. could impress upon her the need to do and be this. That's a separate question. It's definitely not a bad idea, though. I think, really, she's she's stuck in a responsibility trap where she doesn't really want this job anymore. And so Nico's the out. But everybody insists she has it, and Nico is her out. Exactly. Well, well, not just that Nico's the out, but somehow she's going to bend things to make sure this ends somehow. Right. One way or another, she'd like to be done here. So, in a way, that then... because. This goes back to something Sid Stevel would say, which is, start simple, find the complexity. Mm-hmm. Because Nico's not, per se, withdrawing them here to this place when they arrive. Adam knows he's here. Connor doesn't. Right. They're... They're coming for a different reason. Yeah. But he knows there will be an issue when Connor finds this out. Sure. He doesn't really care about the consequences of that, because this place... Well, and if... If Nico is here, yeah. right, and he's going to run to Adam, obviously that's an important scene, but also, right... Does he have any Confederates? At this point, Adam and Nico, I can't say they've had their resolution, but in the ending of the war, when Adam realizes what Nico is, yeah. the conflict against him can't go any further because the force Adam brings to bear can't solve that issue. Right. He's an intractable problem. But does he have help? Does he have other people he's talked into the idea that, that, that things need to end here? Is he trying to yes. take the place over? Is the question. Adam's... Because Adam, that's really yeah. going to be your only contrary faction. Adam's former commander, uh-huh. who has a child now, is living with one of his old friends. Right. And she has slowly come around to the idea that this is awful and should end. Okay. It's her home, but at the same time, what is her home built upon? Right, so she becomes the mouthpiece rather than Nico, who we have established is actually sort of useless. So, for Nico is defeated here. Of why there needs to be something but, changing. Basically, and this is spoiler what Nico ends up doing is, yes, convincing Connor to kill his sister because Nico's failed to do it. Right. And the way Nico does it is says, I tried using your brother, that failed already. Because part of what brought Connor on this journey in the first place was finding his lost siblings sure. and bringing them back somehow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this bastard got his brother killed. Right. But at least he can do what he can put that to end. He can put an end to that. Sure. He can put that last will of his sibling to rest. Yeah. And other consequences of the story are correct. That, that works pretty well. yeah. Hi, 
I'm Joe Heath. I'm Tony Heath. And we're going to watch every episode of Doctor Who and then talk to you about it. Every episode? Every single one. In order? From an unearthly child to, you know, the future. And we're going to do it in a podcast that we call... The Watchathon of Rassilon. Watcherassilon.com. And we're also a part of the ESO Network, so check us out or whatever. Please. Stay Rassil Awesome. Stop trying to make Rassil Awesome a thing. Nope. I would like to eat some nachos, but we're clearly not quite done. I think we're almost. Yes. I want to have a better sense of this transportation system. Okay. How do people interact with it? How does it actually, not in the full details work, but how does it function? So here is my guess. Right? Uh, if we're assuming that this place is loosely analogous to the Tibetan monasteries and the mysterious mountain temples of Pulp Fiction, right? <laughs> yes. Um... It's probably alive, whatever it is. And it's probably something that is not actually all that convenient, but it's the only thing that works. Right, because if it is alive, even in part, it's going to change. Right. So if we have some kind of, I don't know, space yak that you have to ride, you have to get on your space yak and you have to ride the space yak up to see the bump. Basically, you need a form of transportation that is not physically bound to the location. Right, because frankly, trying to climb up a bunch of rusty steel and vines and and magic chitin and things like that just really is pretty as a pretty daunting task, except for the space yak. And please don't use space yaks. It's a terrible idea, but I had to call it Honestly, it does sound like a recipe for becoming a barnacle. Right. It, it, it's not going to end well. You're probably, in fact, potentially you are going to if you're not careful. And maybe this is why the monks are hanging out way out at the edge. Right. If you don't hang out way out on the edge, it's going to grow you into it. That would also be probably why people don't live in the trunk. Right. So this is going to have to be something. Maybe they're ants. Maybe they look vaguely like ants. I don't know. They can get up and down on something like that and negotiate it. And you have to get that thing to behave itself. And probably that's something that the junior monks are good for. You know, this could make sense. Mm -hmm. What if, because an arc ship has to have a means of moving people around in it. Right. What if they have some, if they've managed to scavenge and modify enough of that okay. to make it mobile? On the exterior. Right. I'd imagine the earliest versions just ran around the surface, although that's probably been chewed up and mm -hmm. reintegrated in the bark or whatever. I wouldn't call it purely biological, per se, or purely... Because, again, I don't think, like the midichlorians, you have to give a specific answer. No, to you don't really need to tell. It definitely needs to see... One way or another, it needs to be immune to the generally uh, biologically overgrown phenomenon that's occurring here. It's something that tr it's something the thing, the place won't eat. Right. Whatever that is, it's something that doesn't get eaten, yeah. and it's probably something with a will of its own, which necessitates you having to get it to behave. Which also means that the boats that I mentioned earlier for getting around whatever city all the refugees live in. Sure are not part of this, and the boats are much easier, but you can only take a boat so far, like you said, which will no doubt create a scene where somebody is forced to confront the severe inconvenience of getting off a boat and dealing with this probably, uh, how should I put this, clutched together biological transport system, right. and not like it very much. Yeah, the arrival was a scene I had been chewing over, because obviously in the lower levels there are going to be markets and other types of currency and there will be people things yeah. in, <laughs> stuff you need at the port level there are people things yeah that you don't want to deal with the hazard or the challenge of getting further up for right and probably not even a little hypothetically if you're a refugee who happens to be somebody who dreams too much they send you to the monks it's not really an optional right. so there's a certain degree of 
voluntary or not pilgrimage. Right. You're going to the Mogstad, which raises another interesting to me question of if you show up there and you're and you're somebody who can command fire, do they still try sending you to the most because they don't know any better? I imagine the ones who don't know any better do. The ones who know any better run screaming to the hills to make it go away. Right, which probably has its own set of consequences, which might be weird. I suggest you look into, if you want to include something along those lines, the genuinely heinous stuff they used to do to pirates. Oh, yeah. It's ironic, because in our last conversation, we were talking about the old shrines that attempted to create a society and culture to deal with this phenomenon. Right. And here we've seen people recreate it unwittingly, mm-hmm. because, again, they don't want to deal with it, except for the folks who... Just push it out to the edge and yeah. let, it, let it police itself, and if it gets weird, well, that's okay, because it's over there. And it'll grow, it'll grow itself out. Right, and that's the hope. And probably it won't. That's a whole separate problem. There, there's a myth one of the kids tells early on about a fisherman whose daughter decided to marry a star that fell into the ocean, mm-hmm. and so he drinks the entire ocean away to try to find her. Right. And doing so discovers that they're dying of suffocation because they've adapted to water mm-hmm. and only finds their child who of course dies. Yes, and then goes Tough. back into the skies. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's totally established as a myth mm-hmm. until partway through traveling they see a little statue to the fisherman. Mm-hmm. And I didn't plan that. It was just a little whether that story is true. The statue doesn't tell you if it's true or not, it just tells you that the people who told your protagonist the story weren't the only people telling the story. Right. right. So it's like what was the truth in there that people felt enough to keep on telling that story? Right. doesn't have to ever be established. Mm-hmm. Just that that hit something with people. Right. That folks could do that or would do that. And I think... I like that. For me, part of what I was trying to capture is that sense of wonder. Because, yes, this location is bizarre. But at the same time, it should feel like within the, within the world. Right. It makes a certain amount of sense. It could be. Right. Or someone could look and go... Okay, yeah, I guess that too could happen. Right. And hasn't. And there's a real danger. You'll want to be careful. I, uh, the rest of your world is not frequently that fantastic, at least from the bits I've picked up. No, I don't, embell- I don't indulge in fantasy for the sake of it. You'll want, to ind- you'll want to avoid the problem Glenn Cook had then, where you like bombed something in from a place with a wholly different set of rules here. Right. Even if you establish that this exists on the borderland, where shit is allowed to get weird, you know, in myth and legend everywhere, when you go out to the edges, strange things happen. There's a story, I think, of uh, how Adam's father and his mother, where they skirt that part of the world. Yeah, you'll need to reel it in, or otherwise make sure it doesn't clash, to my point. Yeah, no, I, I... Even just by leaving it mostly confusing and not explained. For me, most of the fantastic should come in the stories, and then occasionally... And again, it's told in first person, so when you hear descriptions of the fantastic, it's through someone's point of view. Well, no, the thing about the fantastic, historically, in myth uh, and legend, and really in you know better stories, anyway, right. is that it only exists in contrast to the people interacting with it. Well, and this is, this is I think, to bring us full circle... Mm-hmm. So I've been watching The Magicians, which is based off of Love Grossman. I've watched the first season. You don't yeah. have to tell me. Uh, it's basically if Harry Potter occurred in college. The answer is nothing good. And with a lot, a substantial thread of mental illness is in fact a serious thing and would probably afflict a lot of fantasy protagonists woven into it. Yeah. The, That's right up front, so I'm not spoiling it much. The thing yeah. I've struggled with, particularly in the second season, and this kind of goes for The Expanse too, it's a dark series. Yes. The sense of wonder is gone. Is gone, mm-hmm. but so is the sense of hope. 
And you need that, if not hope, then joy of happiness. Agency. Yeah. Okay. You don't even need it to be a good thing. You just need your characters to feel as if they have a chance. And for me, part of, I think, to go back to the conversation we'll eventually share with you guys about the four real, or what I found are essential beats of narrative, weirdness, or sad, fu- sad, funny, beautiful, weird. They don't have to be there, but they're useful tools. Mm-hmm. They exist because, yes, you can have the beautiful, you can have it be weird and fantastic, but at the same time, it's a story about people and their life within that world. Right. So what is the mundanity? What is the normalcy? Because, again, it's fantastic to you, the reader, and maybe to them witnessing these Even French things. Speaking as a guy who reads and appreciates horror. Right. Right. The point of a horror story is obviously not that the protagonist is going to succeed or has a chance, or at least it doesn't have to be, but it is about them trying to. It's Inherently, that, it has to be. It's that we would try to, or right. that we can understand why they. However, would. cosmically overwhelming your bad thing is, all right. However far up Lovecraft's butt you want to crawl, as far as that goes, what your characters, the human ones, are doing in relation to this gigantic oppressive thing is still the interesting part. Right. For me, yes, the stories about those full of fire and those are dream too much. But the reason I found it, or that I continue to write, is that. I want to know what the characters find sad or funny or beautiful. I want to know how they live with the choices they right. find themselves in. If Adam is full of fire, what does that do to him? Mm-hmm. That a life without that would not. And what does he try to do to accept that, to not, to fight with it, to survive, literally, right. against people who don't want him to be? Right. So the fantastic, the fantastic emerges out of that. Mm-hmm. By the same token, this place of wonder exists because it is a refuge. It's a place where wonderment has been shoved to. Right. It's also a place where wonderment can accumulate because nobody is trying to prevent it from doing that. So it should be weird, obviously. But it also makes it incredibly fragile. Right. Which, if we're talking about inevitability, means something's going to break or change. Sure. Because in terms of foreshadowing, if you created this frail effectively glass horse. You, the story is almost never that the friend of the glass horse is fine no. at that point. <laughs> to go literary for a moment, there's a reason the play is called The Glass Menagerie. Right. I'm not spoiling it for you when that collection does not make it in one piece. You, you should have some sense and realize that they're not calling it that for fun, though. No. So, from your stuff, stories you've read, games you've played, and what was the best location, the most fascinating thing that just engrossed you fully? And what was the one that did the least? You can do that, or that you just could not feel alive in. And you can do it in the order. I'm thinking about it, and that's a hard one for me to answer because I don't tend to hang on to it very much. Okay. But there was an idea that Joe Hill goes to in NOS4A2, right? That if a weird or bad enough thing happens, it literally creates a resonance, right? It creates its own little contained space in which it can operate. And I found his descriptions of the ones that happen in that story, and um, or that that are important to that story, right? Uh, And that exist there, very interesting, because the idea of a place kind of making itself, making its own set of rules, 
is interesting. Tom Thomas Ligotti does the same thing in a story called Vastarian uh, of his, where a guy gets a hold of a book that describes this very spooky city, okay. and he's fascinated by the very spooky city. So guess where he winds up? <laughs> yes, right. And then he is somewhat less fascinated all of a sudden. But it was, as with a lot of Thomas Ligotti's stories, inevitable once he once he took the first step on that road. He was going there. That, that's what was going to happen. It's funny. My art history teacher years ago, he said, the thing we forget about a photograph, a picture book, mm-hmm. is that it's only the briefest of moments we've chosen to preserve. And that we forget everything else that occurred around that or that we reconstruct it. In that same sense, the book is only those brief moments the author chose to share with that reader there. And when he goes to the place that is beyond what's shown in the text... Yeah. Whereas the thing that nearly always bounces off me, right, is when the detail of a place has clearly become more important than <laughs> what's happening the in scenery, that place. Scenery porn. Right. When, when scenery porn or takes over, even for a minute, you've lost me, at least until we're done with the scenery porn. I love Tad Williams' descriptions. They're lush, they're detailed. Okay. But there are chapters of Sea Voyages. Mm-hmm. And the first time I read, I think it was Memory, Sorrow, and Form, which is a four-series, average 800 to 900-page book. Right. Some fascinating characters, really very Tolkien-esque in the lore and the history of the characters. But there were 70 or 60 or 70 pages of Sea Voyage, and a character being seasick and whiny. Right. And I just went, nope, and moved on. Yeah, one of the really weird studies uh, in contrast, actually, for me, uh, in the... Early 90s, Sierra made a game called Betrayal at Crondor, which plays around oh, yeah. in Raymond Feist's literary universe, right, with a story that is attached to and relates to his main narrative. <laughs> I hated the spellcasting mechanic in that game. Yes, it was pretty inconvenient. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll give you that happily. But um, what I wanted to say about <laughs> I died because I set you apart. There are still musical themes from that game that stick in my head. Yeah. Whereas if you asked me to describe to you any of the scenes in his books, which I have read pretty extensively, right. Feist is not about that as an author. A lot of his scenes are kind of skeletal, at least the way I remember them. He's about characters. Right. So the fact, I only really have a sense of Midkemia as a place from a video game in which you visit a very limited part of the world as described by Feist. But I have a very strong sense of place for things like Malik's Cross, for example, <laughs> which is just a village in that game that had a great theme song. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I don't know if I said on the podcast before, but I grew up with music and writing together. Mm-hmm. When I was a little kid, I had these stupid sing-song games where I'd mix words and sounds together. So for me, that dividing line between them has never been clear. Okay. And music, like themes from video games or whatnot, even if the... The, the character themes or place names, mm-hmm. those will stick. Right. Let's end on this. If you could, actually, no, I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw a setting at you. Okay. As potentially something for one shot, and you can tell me whether you'd like to play it or not. Yeah. I was listening to Free the Boot, which I don't know if you ever listened to, but it's been no. around ten years. They've been they started off as MechWarrior and a few other games. But okay. Basically, pod role playing and everything. Okay. And a lot of uh, sometimes not PG humor, but that's going to happen. Right. One of the host Broder brought up this game that his settings come up recently called Salt in the Wound. Okay. The premise is that they defeated the Tarasque, and they built a city on it, and they're trying to live off of it. Okay. They were supposed to kill it, but they haven't figured out that part. So in the meantime, they've just bound it and are gnawing it to death. And and his the reason he brought it up is that he said, I feel bad for the Tarasque, and I want to run the game where you do too. That would be hard. There are at least a couple of uh, other role-playing games 
that I can think of. I've forgotten the name of one, but you live inside a worm that ate the earth. I think it's a similar premise. Basically, you were living inside a destructive force. Well, right, but in that one, the emphasis is on, okay, well, you've been eating, but you ain't dead yet, so what are you going to do? Right. Uh, and there's another one, which I think is called The Nightmare Beneath, where dungeons are not structures. Dungeons are these weird, sort of, out of Joe Hill, oh, living entity spaces That's that horrifying. occur. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and you are playing the people who are fool enough to go in there. You know, I would almost want to play that where that's not known at first. Mm -hmm. So it's just, oh, this is a grand adventure. Uh, you may be uh, touching on what I might have in mind to do, perhaps, in future episodes of uh, <laughs> Outer, uh, Outer Worlds. Is this uh, the space drug barbarians? Uh, I have some thoughts there. But, uh, like, uh, but uh, the point is, neither of those settings ask you to be sympathetic to the monster and to ask you to be well, sympathetic. the setting doesn't. Right. He feels bad about well, it. Well, but that's the, that's the, that's the version we're discussing, right? right. No, it, like the rules may not ask you to, but this guy wants to try to do it where you feel bad for the terrace. And I actually think that's cheating. Well, I think to ask you, perhaps, because and that's what they countered. Because initially, the other host tore at it and started getting into the ecosystem of this and how implausible it was. Right. As well as how deep, deep and literal shit they would become. Right. Other things that became apparent, vegetables would become hipster food. Uh-huh. Again. <laughs> and water. Aren't you a man? Eat terrace meat. <laughs> okay, because they start going, well, if you're eating nothing but terrasque meat all the time, you're going to want the veggies. And uh, where do you get them from? It's like, well, the, there's water somehow. It's like, but where? But where? It's you're all terrasque. You're living on a gigantic corpse. <laughs> what? Well, it's still alive. Okay, you're living on a gigantic semi-corpse. <laughs> <laughs> eventually, they got around to him trying to argue how he wanted to tell this dark story. Right. And so you go, the premise is fascinating because, on the one hand, they've managed this monumental feat of defeating... There's a Doctor Who episode that's similar to... Uh, it's one of the, I think, David Tennant ones? The Beast Below. I remember the title. That sounds about right. Yeah, where, for whatever reason, spacing... I'm, I'm going to spoil the episode, like, right now. Oh, Doctor Who fans, just, sign off just now. Just to warn your listeners, if you care, it's a pretty old Doctor Who episode at this point, but still... They're screaming already. The, the, the Space Britain is living on a space whale, and they're torturing the space whale. <laughs> Just by the mere fact of their existence. This is my surprise at any of that sentence. Right. No, it makes perfect <laughs> sense. Uh, I don't even really remember the plot of the episode, just that general idea, if I'm being honest at this point. Sure. But, like, um, you can feel bad for the whale because the space British people are mostly awful. And now your characters in this Tarrasque game will also need to be mostly awful because otherwise the premise doesn't work. Okay. So they can't be like the only nice guys in this city full of awful people. We're going to do this? Right. We're going to have John on. You know what his character's going to be called? Yeah. Pius Yeltar. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not... That's, that's, how long have you had that one in the queue? <laughs> it's not cool at all. <laughs> so that's it for the show. If you like what you hear, you can leave us a review on Google Play, Stitcher iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app, or show your support on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash Jared Surf. And, of course, if you have a tale of your own to share, you can write to us at feedusyourtales at herebetires.com. That's Tigers of the Y. See you all next time. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon 
or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.